Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be here with my friend and teacher, Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, who is an Orthodox ordained rabbi, educator, writer, and speaker who has led the call for LGBTQ inclusion in the Orthodox world. He's the first openly gay Orthodox rabbi and is the founding director of Eshel, the Orthodox LGBTQ plus community support, education, and advocacy organization. Friends at Early Aesthetic, you need to know about Eshel if you don't already. Eshel's mission is to create a future for Orthodox lesbians gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals and their families. Through its innovative and culturally sensitive programming, Eshel works with each individual family and community in creating a place for the LGBTQ plus members. Eshel envisions a world where Orthodox LGBTQ individuals can live out their lives in the Orthodox communities of their choice. In 2001, Rabbi Greenberg was featured in the groundbreaking film, Trembling Before God, and has since accompanied filmmaker Sandy Simcha Dubowski all over the world in over 500 post-screening dialogues. He authored the pioneering and acclaimed book, Wrestling with God and Men, Homosexuality in the Jewish Tradition, which he won the Koret Jewish Book Award for Philosophy and Thought, the most prestigious award in Jewish prose. Rabbi Greenberg is also a founder of the Jerusalem Open House, Jerusalem's first gay and lesbian community center. He is a faculty member of the Hartman Institute of North America, and he was previously a senior teaching fellow at CLOW, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Rabbi Greenberg received his BA in philosophy from Yeshiva University and his rabbinic ordination from REITS. He lives with his partner, Stephen Goldstein, and their daughter, Amalia, in Boston. Steve, thanks for making time. No, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Shmuel. Thank you so much. So let's start with Purim. I know there's many things on our mind, but let's start with Purim because we should start on a happy note, right? We are entering the, we are in the second month of Adar. We are excited to put on our costumes and hear the Megillah and send Shalach Manot and give Matanot Le'ev Yonim and fulfill the mitzvot of the day and bring more joy into the world. What's some Torah you're thinking about this Purim? <laughs> Funny you should ask because uh, uh, 7.30 tonight, I'm giving a shiur um, on the on the uh, the dynamic between the hidden and the revealed inside the Megillah, and and in a way that setting up the the I don't even know if we need this anymore, but the possibility of a national Jewish coming out day, and that day would be would be Purim. I mean, it could be you know like at at the end of Tanis Esther and the beginning of Purim could be on Purim, but the notion is is that um, nearly everybody in the story is uh, um, is incognito, is in drag, is is in costume, pretending to be something they are not, um, and attempting to, you know, to navigate the difficulty of holding a secret that they cannot share. So for Esther and Mordecai, they're Jews, and, and they, they don't share the fact that they're, that they're Jews. Um, in fact, Esther is told by Mordechai, don't tell anybody. And then, and, and uh, Ahasuerus is hiding the fact that he's, you know, uh, uh, an incompetent who probably came to uh, the royalty by marrying Vashti, who really is a Persian princess. And so, and Haman is basically presenting himself as the loyal servant of the king when actually he's uh, in it for his own ego and his own power. So the story unravels, uh, everyone is outed. The only, by the way, the only person who's, who's not hiding an inner life um, is Vashti. Vashti is the only one who refuses this case to dress down as someone she isn't. 
the story ends in this powerful way where everyone is outed and Mordechai and Esther become uh, a kind of newly framed, uh, it's, it's, it's something new in the world, a Jewish leader who is both fully alive to the Persian world and part of it in leadership and fully alive to the Jewish world in leadership there as well. And this is the very first circumstance of such a, so in a way, you know, you might think of the work that Will Aesthetic is doing as, uh, as also a piece of this revelatory transformation of what was hidden to be what is revealed. Beautiful, beautiful. I love that so much. And absolutely that resonates for me. And on, picking up on this theme of revealed and concealed um, and starting to think about our trans friends and siblings, um, on the one hand, if you're trans and you are uh, invisible, you're at risk because you're invisible. On the other hand, once you are visible, you're also more vulnerable. So that the seen and unseen and vulnerability that comes with being seen and not being seen. So help us unpack what's what's happened in Texas. I think uh, a lot of people are trying to understand both the dimensions of, of this attack on trans uh, kids um, and also trying to understand how to respond. Can you help us unpack this a little bit? Well, it's a, it's a, I'm getting feedback, by the way, when I speak. Don't know what that's about. We don't hear it here, so. Okay, good. As long as you don't hear it, it's okay. So um, here's, I, it's, it's a larger question that can be, you know, addressed in this semester, but the most important thing to know is that no matter how this, um, this plays out, um, in regard to politics, our responsibility is to make sure that vulnerable kids are, are, are not made even more endangered by the way in which adults might fear um, issues of having to do with gender and sexuality. And the, the, the challenge is really real. Uh, some 40% of all trans kids uh, 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 have have suicidal thoughts and even attempt suicide in some cases, and it's an enormously high number. Um, the LGB the LGB kids are also in danger, but the trans kids nearly double that. So um, it's a very difficult world to be born into when one feels that one's inner life and one's you know the representation that the body conveys to the world is, doesn't match. And knowing how to navigate that at the age of three and five and seven and 15 is extremely challenging. And while I also think that it's, it's very important for us to be responsible to the processes because they are morally complex in regard to transition, nonetheless, our first and, and most significant concern should be the well being of kids. And so, we, by the way, you should know that uh, Eschel's been approached repeatedly in the past year and a half, because during COVID, many kids came out of the closet as trans or as non-binary, and they did so at camp away from their parents or in school in circumstances where schools with orthodox frameworks didn't really, had really no means of understanding how to manage, even if they had good intentions in mind and wanted to take care of kids. So uh, the, the work is ongoing and um, you know, we hope that people can find a way to 
prioritize the subjective reality of these kids and do right by them while allowing communities to be able to take their time in responding in ways that are challenging for them. So just a quick follow-up on this. Uh, in regards to the pikuach nefesh issue, the issue of, of saving and preserving life, we, we know that giving proper mental health uh, resources uh, is crucial. Do we have data that, that providing medical access, medical resources to trans kids actually will reduce the suicide risk? Um, so it's interesting. So I, I, to be honest, I don't know the answer to that question, but I, my presumption would be is that, that you cannot separate psychological and medical um, um, support in this area. In this area, uh, it is the most um, uh, uh, debilitating, emotionally debilitating and undermining thing to watch one's body transform incrementally over time in not in the right direction that one feels one, you know, um, internally, you know, is destined for. And that sense of not intervening medically for some reason is in a way a, a certain kind of torture. And so while it needs to be balanced by all kinds of concerns uh, that both institutions and, and the medical profession and psychologists, psychiatrists might have, meaning I, I, I don't think that this is an issue that is simple. Nonetheless, uh, there should be no way we, we put off the table any medical interventions that might prove necessary for the a psychological uh, uh, health of the child. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for that. So, um, so to look at the national movement before we go back to orthodoxy, you know, over the over recent years, uh, I mean, obviously, right now, our heads and hearts are all in Ukraine. Um, uh, and over the last few years, we have been thinking about um, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, we've been thinking about COVID. But movement wise, we talked a lot about race with Black Lives Matter. We talked a lot about um, uh, gender in regards to uh, the Me Too movement. Um, and I wonder, uh, we haven't heard as much about movements in the LGBTQ front. I wonder what you, what you see happening on a national level in terms of progress and movements right now. Not that we're in competition with other movements in any way, of course, um, right. but just to understand better what's happening on a national level. Well, I think until this, um, you know, the past administration and its and its rhetoric, and then alongside what has happened in the in the Republican Party on these issues, I think prior to that, the focus was largely on taking care of young people and making sure that the uh, achievements of marriage equality were secured and supported across the board. Uh, not only, you know, in uh, um, in the kind of formal governmental frames, but also in religious frames, in frames where, you know, can married couples adopt children, you know, in many places that's more complicated if you're gay. And to, to actually make um, LGBTQ uh, uh, marriage rights secure and grounded. Now, what occurred um, over the past two, well, four years now, is a resurgence of a certain kind of um, halcyon fantasy that that we ought to go back to uh, a time when um, men and women uh, were, you know, divided by 
by homemaker and out of the house worker when when uh, you know when gender was clear, when sexuality was understood and heteronormative, and uh, that conservative backlash uh, is something I think that maybe some of us were not prepared for. So there's no question that I think right now more than ever uh, we are in a position where the traditional Jewish community needs to be addressed, particularly because. Uh, its ethos is now being reflected in uh, larger frames uh, around the country in political circumstances that you would never have imagined real. The fact that one cannot uh, speak about um, gay people in a public school uh, in certain grades and in certain contexts really puts the kibosh on what we had thought was a moving, like it, things were getting better. And now we need to go back and figure out, and here's in a way what Eschel does that I think is important. In order for progress to work, we need to populate the middle spaces. Because what happens is, is that the left talks to the left and the right talks to the right. And you can do this, you can give a Torah lecture and provide all the sources that say no and provide all the sources that press toward, you know, Onus Rahmana Patre, the merciful one, uh, doesn't hold accountable those that are under duress and 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 nefesh. In other words, everybody will have their verses, and then what happens is is that everyone takes their verses and goes home, and nothing happens. So that you get you know the 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 Orthodox people to feel that they do not need to be challenged, and the queer community to feel that it doesn't need to answer to any religious concerns whatsoever. What we all need to do is to figure out how to tolerate diversity and populate the center. And that is the, it's the hardest work. It means um, in a way you have to be careful about the messages you give because the messages you give will either, you know, be hurrah to the people who agree and, and be demonized by the people who don't. You've got to give messages that make everybody feel that they are, humbled by the realities of the other that they are confronting. Mm -mm. And that a space of humility in the middle is what everybody needs right now. And it's what's most lacking. Yeah, that is so powerful. You know, in so many other movements, we hear you're intolerant, you're a hater, you're out. And what I hear you saying is, no, 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 no. We need to stay humble in conversation, in dialogue, in community with people who exhibit intolerance at this moment. That is the only way to make a path forward. I think that's incredibly wise. It makes sense why this is an orthodox movement too. And I think that's where real progress happens. Um, and so thank you for that. So last question, I know you could talk about this for hours, but picking up on what you were just saying, looking at orthodoxy now, um, where, where are we experiencing some unique progress? Where are we ex experiencing some unique pushback? What, what are the opportunities of the moment? So the progress is actually quite dramatic. Um, we've interviewed over 230 orthodox pulpit rabbis. And the fact that they engage with us in a conversation is itself remarkable. Um, so I would say some uh, 35%, some third, a little more than a third, um, are articulating complete and utter empathy with reality and express halakha as a kind of limiting factor that they wish they could have leadership 
help them solve. And they are with us. It's just that they recognize that in order to, to hold on to a nomenclature and a set of social and political positioning, they can't say mazel tov to a gay couple at a wedding or, or, or at a, at a, you know, when they get engaged. But we've discovered that many of them are coming up with ways for gay couples, certainly gay individuals, that's actually um, broadly uh, in the modern Orthodox community and even in others, gay people can be out and attend synagogue. And usually, as long as they're not carrying a banner all the time, there really are very few places now that exclude. But when you're married, you're real. You define a reality that people have to deal with, and especially if you have kids. So the space we're finding most difficulty in is this space of normalization of the lives of LGBTQ folks. We're, we're pushing and engaging um, the community with a movie called Marry Me However, and we're happy to bring it to any community that wants to watch it. Rabbi Mordechai Vardi is an Orthodox rabbi uh, of Kibbutz of Rosh Surim in Israel, um, made a film, a documentary, interviewing three gay men and two lesbians who married against their orientation to fulfill familial and re religious expectations and it all falls apart. And the, they tell their story with the ex-spouses in front of rabbis and, and educators. And it's very powerful And the underlying, like the, the sentiment that's deepest there is like rabbis only can say two things to people like either get married against your orientation or live a celibate life if you don't give a 15 year old some vision of adulthood yeah they are either going to do terrible things to themselves or others or walk away right and so right now we are in that space where orthodox rabbis are struggling to figure out how they hold on to that conflict and address it um you know and we're you know we're finding rabbis willing but very nervous about where it might lead them and not sure about how to respond. Okay, so, uh, so I lied, I have one last question. Um, the, um, our community does singles events, singles events, and there's a total heteronormative assumption um, in these singles events. Should we be expanding single events to straight folks and queer folks and like have single events that is kind of a, a space for everyone to kind of be in? Or should we make more clear that this is a straight single event, so to speak, and this is a queer single event? How do we, how do we embrace people seeking partners in these types of gatherings? <laughs> well, you think you have trouble. If I run a if I run a dating event, I have to worry about not only you know the the gay guys and the lesbian women and having separate events for them, but I got to worry about this the you know the gender queer folks who are not necessarily articulating any gender and the folks that are you know kind of uh, uh, interested in dating somebody but are are bi and therefore. Who, who are they allowed to kind of be show interest in and who not in? So um, the complexity here is real. And what I would suggest is, is that the way, the way we think it makes most sense is to dis make friendship engaging programs where anybody can meet anybody with the, with the, within the back, in the back of people's minds, they're still thinking who am I, who I might connect with and then have dating events 
that are very specific to what people are looking for. Great. Love it. Love it. Friends, donate to Eshel. And you should also get on their mailing list and follow their social media. And you should do that if you're queer, but you should also do that if you have an LGBTQ family member or friend. And you should also do that if you have a community member. And we should also all do that because we all are allies to this work. And so it's something we all have to be a part of. Thank you so much, Steve. Keep up. Thank you so much, really.